the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with um, First Image CEO Larry Gadbaugh. This is the Sanctity of Human Life Week. We're going to talk about uh, the work of the Pregnancy Resource Centers, which is a compassionate response. And for 33 years they've been reaching out in our community. We'll talk with him more about that when he joins us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Tori Whiting, who's a research associate at the Center for International Trade and Economics. We'll talk about the president's uh, trade tariffs, which I would agree are wrong-headed. We'll talk with Tori about that. Jonathan Butcher will join us also in the five o'clock hour, a senior policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy. You may not have known it, but this is the seventh annual National School Choice Week. We'll talk about uh, why that matters and uh, what's happening. And we'll talk with Jeff Jimerson. He's the director of Oregon Life United. Petition number one is currently circulating to stop state funding of abortion in Oregon. I attended, as I mentioned earlier this week, Speak Life 18, and it was an opportunity to learn more about this effort. And uh, we're going to make sure you know about it as well, how to get a petition and to circulate that and how close we are to putting this question on Oregon's ballot the first time since 1984. So Jeff Jimerson will join us uh, to bring you up to date on that. And I'm, I'm hoping that it won't just be informative, but that it will elicit a, a specific response. Well, a large 7.9 magnitude earthquake struck off Alaska's Kodiak Island early this morning, prompting a tsunami warning for a large swath of coastal Alaska and Canada's British Columbia that was later downgraded to an advisory as possible destructive waves failed to materialize, thankfully. The U.S. Geological Survey said the quake was recorded about 12.31 a.m local time, about 150 miles off um, the coast of Alaska. The Pacific Tsunami Warning Center initially said widespread hazards, hazardous tsunami waves were possible, but later said those waves failed to show up in coastal communities, which, by the way, included the Oregon, California, and Washington coastline. Buoy 4641, uh, located northeast of the quake's epicenter, records a water displacement of 32 feet, the National Weather Service said. That's meaningful to them, maybe not so much much to us, but the uh, the report said 32-foot waves uh, were possible, but they failed to materialize in coastal areas, which only saw between a one- to three-foot rise. And again, thankfully, officials in coastal areas told residents to hold fast as evacuation centers uh, at evacuation centers until further notice and to wait for an all-clear before returning to low-lying areas. The town of Kodiak has several shelters above 100-foot mark, and police encouraged people below that level to evacuate. Police have not uh, received any reports of damage. The Alaska Earthquake Information Center said the quake was felt uh, widely in several communities on the Kenai Peninsula and throughout southern uh, Alaska, but it also had no immediate reports of damage. This is a very large earthquake, and Alaska is no 
stranger to earthquakes or tsunamis. Senior meteorologist Janice Dean on Fox and Friends said earlier today uh, they've had four of them in the past. Well, the Kodiak Police Department also posted a video to Facebook imploring residents to leave their homes and to head to higher ground. Now, again, this took place at 12.31 a.m., so you wonder how many people were aware that this was happening at all and what other kind of alarm system they may have. But nonetheless, the uh, waves did not materialize and the people of Alaska were quite relieved. But the National Weather Service also uh, had a tsunami watch for Oregon, California and Washington. That strong earthquake that struck many miles away early today prompted that initial tsunami watch for the coastal areas that uh, was uh, canceled at about 4.15 a.m. this morning. The watch was issued for a large swath of coastal Alaska and uh, British Columbia, as I mentioned, uh, because of that quake in uh, in Kodiak. About a half hour later, the Lieutenant uh, Tim Putney of the Kodiak Police Department said there has been no report of a wave and nothing has been seen. However, officials were telling people to hold fast at evacuation centers until further notice, which they did. Um, the Alaska Earthquake Information Center said the quake was felt widely in several areas uh, and initially uh, was reported at an 8.2 magnitude, uh, recorded about 175 miles southeast of Kodiak Island early this morning. Warnings from the National Weather Service sent to cell phones in Alaska warned emergency alert, tsunami danger on the coast, go to high ground or move inland. Kodiak officials uh, had warned residents to evacuate if they lived in these low-lying areas. And it's not uh, clear how much um, residents there heeded that warning. But nonetheless, no uh, no damage uh, reported. Well, Hawaii Governor David Icke uh, explained today, or rather yesterday, that not knowing his own Twitter password contributed to the delay notifying the people of Hawaii that the ballistic missile alert they received on January the 13th was, in fact, a false alarm. I told reporters on Monday part of the 38-minute delay was due to the fact that he did not know his Twitter password. That was reported by the Honolulu Star Advertiser. On the 13th, Hawaiians received an alert on their phone and television's warning of an inbound ballistic missile. That had to have been terrifying. 38 minutes later, it was revealed to be a false alarm. But for 38 minutes, they were texting and phoning family members on the mainland saying their final goodbyes, which I previously said was sent because someone pushed the wrong button and that the mistake occurred during an employee shift change. Well, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency Administrator uh, Vern Migagi uh, claimed responsibility for erroneously sending out the alert and called for reforms such as designating one person to send out alerts and equipment changes. He also acknowledged the importance of a full investigation. The governor expressed similar sentiments concerning uh, an investigation, saying, while I am thankful that the alert was a false alarm, the public must have confidence in our emergency alert system. I am working to get to the bottom of this so we can prevent an error of this type in the future, he said in a statement. But again, the governor could not remember or did not know his Twitter uh, password, so he could not send the all clear. And it took about 38 minutes before that was um, finally done. Well, there's serious talk on Capitol Hill about the appointment of a second special counsel amid several new bombshell revelations swirling around the Trump-Russia probe. First, there are the allegations of shocking and substantial government surveillance abuse under President Obama, outlined in the FISA abuse memo. Secondly, the FBI lost five months of key text messages between the anti-Trump pro-Clinton FBI officials Peter Stroke and his mistress Lisa Page. And now there's talk of a secret society, in quotes, of officials within the FBI that apparently met the day after the election of Donald Trump to plot against the president's 
elect. Well, top Republicans now believe there may be real grounds for a second special counsel. Representatives Devin Nunez, Trey Gowdy and Bob Goodlot, they met on Saturday to discuss the FISA memo and the text messages. And they're in the process of going through the steps necessary to release the four page FISA memo and intend to see it released to the public by early February. The FBI has demanded to see a copy of the memo, but so far, understandably, the Intelligence Committee has declined to show them their hand. Republicans believe that publishing the memo will be pressure on the attorney general to appoint a second special counsel. Representatives Gowdy and Radcliffe uh, were on uh, Fox News, the story with Martha McCallum on Monday night to talk about the latest developments. Representative Radcliffe said that the former FBI director James Comey needs to come back to Capitol Hill to testify again under oath on the question of when the decision to exonerate the former secretary of state was made. The latest batch of text messages between Stroke and Page suggests that Comey was coordinating with Attorney General Lynch on the decision well ahead of his July 5th press conference. It's really clear to me, says um, Gowdy, uh, that the decision was made in May of 2016, two months before the press conference. Of course, Loretta Lynch knew he wasn't going to be charged. Everyone except the public knew that she was not going to be charged, In quote. We knew that Stroke and Page had an intense anti-Trump bias, and that's okay so long as they check it at the door and do their job, Radcliffe said. But we learned today in the thousands of text messages that we received that perhaps they may not have uh, may not have been done. Of course, they're now saying a good number of them have been lost or misplaced as well. So the plot thickens and the drama continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Later this hour, we're going to talk with uh, Larry Gadbaugh. He's the chief executive officer of First Image. We'll talk about the sanctity of human life and the ongoing ministry of the Pregnancy Resource Center in the Portland area that's been serving here for some 33 years. Well, the U.S. Senate uh, today voted to confirm Jerome Powell as the next chairman of the Federal Reserve. Powell will assume the role of the central bank's top official in February. I'm trying to get that R in there, February. No, everyone says February. It's February. So I'm trying to get it right. So if it sounds sort of odd, that's because I'm trying to pronounce the R, which may be silent, but anyway. Anyway, he's going to be replacing Janet Yellen. President Trump uh, chose Powell, a member of the Fed's Board of Governors, as his nominee for the Fed chair in November. During his confirmation hearing before lawmakers, he signaled that he would largely support current Fed policies, including gradual increases to the interest rate. So um, again, earlier today, Jerome Powell was uh, confirmed to be the next chairman of the Federal Reserve. Well, chief executives are more optimistic about the economic outlook than they have been for many years, although anxieties are rising about geopolitics, cyber threats, and terrorism. That's according to a survey that showed uh, the eve of the World Economic Forum in Davos. The um, survey of nearly 1,300 CEOs found that 57% expect global growth to improve in 2018, almost twice the level of last year, and the largest increase since the survey began in 2012. The optimism was especially strong in the United States after a year of robust growth, deregulation, and tax cuts under President Trump. Some 59% of U.S. CEOs expressed rather confidence in the economy compared to 24% last year, and 52% said they expect this to translate into revenue growth for their companies in 2018, up from 39%. Says uh, Bob Moritz, global chairman of PWC that conducted the survey, with the stock markets booming and the GDP predicted to grow in most major markets around the world, it's no surprise CEOs are so bullish. But the optimism over the one-year outlook masked deepening anxieties over a range of societal threats. 
At least 40 percent of these CEOs admitted to being extremely concerned about geopolitical uncertainty, cyber threats and terrorism. That's because they live in the real world, although (laughs) the world a little different from most of us. Thirty one percent worried about the climate change after a year of devastating storms. Last week, the uh, Global Risks report pointed to rising concerns about uh, war after a year in which uh, the president threatened to totally destroy nuclear power North Korea and pull the U.S. out of a deal between Western powers and Iran uh, aimed at curbing its nuclear program. The higher uh, level of concern is being driven by larger societal and uh, geopolitical shifts rather than the dynamics of business leaders' own markets, Mr. Moritz went on to say. Well, there are some things that are deplorable, and they happen with such great frequency that they become less headline news than perhaps they once did. And one such story occurred earlier today in Kentucky, where there was a school shooting that left at least two dead, 17 under uh, others injured, according to officials, 14 of whom, aside from the two dead, were shot. Well, a shooting at Marshall County High School in Benton, Kentucky, left at least two people dead, 17 others injured after a student opened fire earlier today. During a news conference later in the day, officials said the alleged shooter, a 15-year-old male student himself, was in custody and will be charged with murder and attempted murder. Governor Matt Bevan uh, wrote on his Twitter page, tragic shooting at Marshall High School, Marshall County High School, shooter is in custody, one confirmed fatality, multiple others wounded, much yet unknown. Please do not speculate or spread hearsay. Let's let the first responders do their job and be grateful that they are there to do it for us. Well, he was apprehended, the alleged shooter, by the sheriff's department on site at the school, thankfully before any more lives were uh, could be taken, according to the Kentucky State Police Lieutenant Michael Webb. Authorities were seen escorting a handcuffed individual away from the scene, again, a 15-year-old. The shooting began around 8 a.m. when the teenager entered the school with a handgun, according to authorities. The 17 people injured were all believed to be students, according to the uh, Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan, who added that 12 of them, I think I said 14 earlier, but 12 of them had suffered gunshot wounds, so he was rather prolific in his shooting. The two people killed included a 15-year-old female student who died at the scene and a 15-year-old male student who died at the hospital, and that occurred after the governor's initial uh, tweet. Governor Bevan said the alleged shooter was apprehended by police in a nonviolent manner. He said the incident was an ongoing investigation. This is a wound that is going to take a long time to heal, he went on to say. The governor later added on Twitter that the community would get through this dark day together, writing, the souls of Marshall County have been bruised and the fabric of the community has been torn, but the people of Benton, Kentucky and the surrounding communities are strong with faith in God and with reliance on friends and family. We will get through this dark day together. Hashtag we are KY for Kentucky. Uh, Mitch Garland told the Associated Press he saw 100 children running out of the school seeking safety after the shots started going off. Uh, there was uh, running and crying and screaming, he said. There was just, uh, or there were, I correct that a little bit, kids running down the, high- the, the highway. They were trying to get out of there. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul tweeted his thoughts and prayers to the victims of the shooting. Deeply saddened by the tragic news out at Benton, Kentucky this morning and uh, closely monitoring the situation. We mourn the lost and are praying for those who were injured as well as their families, friends and the heroic first responders. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell also tweeted his thoughts to those impacted by the shooting. Closely tracking reports of the tragedy in Benton, Kentucky at Marshall County High School. And my thoughts are with the students, teachers, faculty and the entire community. Thank you to the first responders who continue to put themselves in harm's way to protect others, he tweeted. Representative uh, James uh, Comer, who represents Kentucky's first congressional district, uh, tweeted the first official indication that there had
had been an incident at the school, indicating that his thoughts and prayers went out to the students and faculty at the high school where there had been a tragic event, and it went on. Uh, Lexi Wayman, a 16-year-old, said she and a friend were talking about the next basketball game, makeup and eyelashes, when the gunshots pierced the air. That's what high school girls talk about. I blacked out. I couldn't move. I got up. I tried to run, but I fell. I heard someone hit the ground. It was so close to me, she went on to say. I just heard it, and then I just, everything was black for a good minute. Like I could not see anything. I just froze and did not know what to do. Then I got up and ran. Wayman uh, didn't stop running, not even when she uh, called her mom to tell her what had happened. She made it to the McDonald's, her chest hurting, struggling to breathe. All I could think of was, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. It was chaotic outside the school as parents and students rushed around trying to find one another. Uh, says a floral shop owner nearby. All the parking lots were full with parents, kids hugging each other, crying, nobody really knowing what was going on. Uh, 14-year-old uh, said that he put uh, was put on a bus, taken to another school to be picked up by the parents. The usual chaos that we hear about after these uh, these incidents. Well, the community is about 120 miles northwest of Nashville, Tennessee. The shooting comes one day after a student opened fire in Italy High School, about 45 miles south of Texas, early Monday. A female student was recovering after police said that she was shot by a 15, or rather 16-year-old classmate in the school's cafeteria. The suspect in that case has been taken into custody and charged with the shooting of the girl, which thankfully she survived. Today, of course, in Oregon is the deadline to vote in Oregon's special election on health care taxes. The last day is of the special election, or this is actually election day. You have to deliver your ballot in person by 8 p.m. in order for your vote to count. The only issue on the ballot is Measure 101, which would raise 210 to $320 million in taxes on Oregon's largest hospitals and most health insurance policies by 2019. Now, that tax increase, of course, would be paid by consumers of the health care system, which are patients. The taxes are one uh, one part of a plan that uh, state lawmakers passed last year to pay for some patients and services under Oregon's Medicaid program. Roughly a million low-income adults and children here in Oregon rely on Medicaid for free health care. The state faces a dilemma on how to pay for the approximately 375,000 adults that were added to Medicaid after eligibility criteria was broadened under the Affordable Care Act. Now, the federal government initially covered 100% of the costs for the newly eligible patients, but the states gradually have to pick up more of the costs, and Oregon hadn't identified a long-term way to pay for it. These taxes are part of the state's short-term fix. Now, many states just simply declined not to participate for this very reason, recognizing that up front, the federal government's making this a panacea, but as time passes, the states are responsible for more and more of the cost. Hospitals had asked to be taxed in order to keep hundreds of thousands of patients insured. Insurance policy would be taxed by 1.5%. Some of those proceeds are to be used to lower the cost of premiums purchased in the individual insurance markets. And by the way, ballot drop boxes are often located at local government buildings like elections, headquarters, libraries, city halls. You can go to the Secretary of State's website to find the nearest drop-off area to you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbop. He's the CEO of First Image. We'll talk about the sanctity of human life, the pregnancy resource centers, and the other services 
services that are provided here in the Portland metro area and by PRCs and similar ministries all across the state. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Sadly, yesterday marked the 45th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions that permitted abortion on demand all across the fruited plain. Since that time, the pro-life movement has grown not only in its passion, but in its effectiveness and in influencing our culture. One arm of the pro-life movement is the Pregnancy Resource uh, Center movement that represents the compassionate arm of the pro-life community all across the country. And joining us to talk about that as well as the broader issue of the sanctity of human life is Larry Gadbaugh, who serves as the chief executive officer of First Image here in the Portland metro area. And in case you don't know, we are so blessed to have someone of his caliber leading this ministry and all of the uh, the staff and volunteers who work alongside him. I am so proud and grateful for the uh, the faithfulness and the perseverance of those who serve in our community and in similar ministries all across the uh, metro area and across the state of Oregon and Washington. So I am just honored to uh, invite and welcome, rather, uh, Larry Gadbaugh to join us once again to talk about the sanctity of human life and some of the ministry that's going on right now in our community. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Georgine. It's always wonderful to be with you. Well, it's a, a delight to have you with us. And again, I, I just want to commend you for, uh, for serving in our community for such a long time and so well. We have a, a legacy here in Oregon of having excellent ministry in this area of pregnancy resource uh, centers, and your leadership is vital to that, and, and we are, are grateful. Now, t- today marks Sanctity of Human Life Week. We talked yesterday about the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton and Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Before we talk uh, more specifically about First Image and the ministries uh, under that, uh, that moniker, let's talk about the Sanctity of Human Life uh, and how you first became pro-life. Um, I know long before you served in the capacity of CEO of First Image, um, you were motivated by the pro-life conviction. How did you come to be a pro-life um, individual and then uh, an activist, essentially? Well, the first thing that happened is that Jesus Christ captured me, you know, out of my lostness and despair uh, in high school. And then later, uh, I was uh, doing a lot of reading with, uh, in Francis Schaeffer's works, who uh, was a real pioneer in worldview thinking and writing and ministry. And uh, I went to a traveling conference with he and Dr. C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General at the time, and became uh, very convicted and and adopted the conviction that uh, every human being is created in the image of God and that God calls us to protect them and to love them uh, as our neighbors uh, from conception on to natural death. And uh, and that's been reinforced by other friendships, uh, you know, and and writings from people such as uh, Randy Alcorn and others, and uh, by the example of people like you, Georgine, and, and serving in the pregnancy resource centers, I, I always feel like I'm always learning. I'm just one part of the team. Mm. Uh, the um, the pregnancy resource centers is a is a full time work for you. A lot of people would identify as pro life, but have never actually done anything constructive. And I, I don't want to say this in the wrong way. They haven't been involved in PRC work. They've not uh, been involved in um, politically in any way. What motivated you to not just hold to pro-life convictions, but to actually um, work toward ministering to those in the case of the, the PRCs uh, who are facing uh, difficult decisions and, and doing something rather than just holding to your, your worldview? Well, of course, as a Christian and as a pastor, I would constantly encounter those who had who uh, had been involved in sexual brokenness and in uh, facing unpleasant 
unplanned pregnancies. And so other ministries, whether it's pregnancy homes, uh, shepherding homes. And then in 1993, I was asked to be part of the steering committee of the Gresham Center, part of uh, the Portland PRCs, and got firsthand uh, exposure to the quality of the people who volunteer and serve in, in the PRC movement. And then in 2001, uh, I was urged, I was exhorted to turn in my resume uh, at the Portland PRC when they were looking for a new executive director. And uh, <clears throat> in praying through that process, I really became convinced and still am absolutely convinced. Every every ministry that, that uh, faithful to Jesus Christ is important. I believe that there are some that are more strategic, uh, that have a greater impact. Their, their, uh, their faithfulness or unfaithfulness has a greater impact on the work of the kingdom and the, and the outgoing of the gospel. And I absolutely believe that the mission of PRC is one of those most strategic ministries. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is because I believe that one of the major attacks throughout history from the garden on is Satan's attack, his strategy against the image of God. And uh, and so our mission is stated is that it's our, uh, we're called to help others to live out the heart of God, to renew his image in the lives of those who have been impacted by sexual brokenness and abortion. And, uh, and, and of course, abortion and sexual brokenness, the attack on marriage, uh, <clears throat> the attack on, on the disabled uh, uh, is one of the key ways that our culture is being uh, led led away from uh, treating each other with dignity and respect and protecting life and giving life instead of... Now, First Image is uh, the umbrella organization over uh, several ministries. There are the Pregnancy Resource Centers, there's HEART, the Reality Project, and these are each have strategic significance in how the message of the sanctity of human life is being communicated. Let's start with the Pregnancy Resource Centers, who last year saw 3,700 uh, clients, 1,100 ultrasounds were performed, and 94% of those uh, who received the ultrasound chose to carry their children to term. It's amazing to consider that all of that's done in the centers, the uh, four centers in the Portland metro area, with only 171 dedicated and faithful volunteers. It is amazing, and it is such an honor, a privilege to serve together with them, and of course, with the support of so many uh, people who, who hold the conviction and, and carry the compassion for those who are facing unplanned pregnancy. So these women uh, come into us from all kinds of situations. I mean, we see the full range of life situations that they bring with us from, from domestic abuse, the drug, you know, the drug addiction to, uh, to sex trafficking and, uh, and also those who are moms who, who are m- already mothers but facing unplanned pregnancy. And we get to show them that, that uh, there, there are alternatives to abortion when they feel trapped and alone in that situation. And, and we know just that figure that you mentioned, Georgine, that not Nine out of, over nine out of ten of those who see their baby on the ultrasound uh, go from either being ambivalent about their pregnancy uh, and abortion to choosing to give life to their baby, uh, to give birth to their baby. And that just tells us that when given the full information and when they are awakened to their life-giving calling uh, as mothers, that most women really don't want an abortion if they're given the support and the education of that that we believe they need to have. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the HEART program, which is a biblically-based recovery uh, group for women who've been affected by an abortion decision. Well, we're so thankful for those who serve in this ministry. It's a small group, small Bible study group ministry that that serves uh, women uh, who have uh, suffered from abortions in their past, many of them for decades, and most of them have lived with this secret without telling anybody and not being able to process that grief and that loss. And most of them really uh, come to consciously regret their past abortions. When the common statistic is that one out of three women in the United States have had at least one, one abortion, and most of those are still living with that secret, and, and, it, and it has so many effects upon them. But when they 
that when they're able to go through our heart program, um, they're able to see that God is a God of grace. He's a God of reconciliation, a God of forgiveness, and uh, to process that grief and that loss and that, uh, that shame that they carry, and uh, to be set free from that. And uh, and some and some of our volunteers and staff uh, have recovered from that. And then, like Second Corinthians one says, they comfort others with the comfort with the grace that they've received through that process. We see the gospel at work in that in that situation. Mm. Now we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but when we return, we're going to talk about another of the uh, the projects of uh, First Image, the Reality Project. It's perhaps uh, one element that people know less about who don't have students in school or grandkids. So we're going to talk about the Reality Project, and again, we're talking with Larry Gadbaugh. He's the CEO of First Image. Uh, during this Sanctity of Human Life week, we've been focusing our attention on uh, on the occasion and challenging you to consider how you might uh, commit yourself to serving in some way in some pro-life capacity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 47 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing a conversation with Larry Gadbaugh. I've cleared it with Dan Rice, and he is one of my favorite people on the planet. He's the CEO of First Image. We're talking on the, during Sanctity of Human Life Week about uh, the sanctity of human life and the, the ministry of First Image, uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center, the Heart Program, and the Reality Project. Now, that's one of the projects that listeners may be less familiar with. Let's talk about it. Tell us about the Reality Project. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I was hearing your bumper music there. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Reality Project is invited into 22 different schools uh, in the greater Portland area, and uh, they present uh, in a very creative, uh, interactive way with the students uh, the, uh, the perspective on relationships and sexual integrity. And uh, we're invited in by the health teachers and we're able to present really a countercultural uh, approach to thinking about relationship and sex and their sexual development. And so we were able to uh, last year uh, present over sit-out students in uh, 22 schools and uh, and really uh, see these students begin to think from a different perspective about their relationships and how they want to treat each other and how they want to, uh, you know, really in some ways uh, think differently about how they think about sex. I mean, I don't tell, you know, our audience that that we are pummeled, we are pounded with uh, the messages about sex and with sexual uh, activity uh, being t- basically sexual anarchy. And uh, so for them to, to think differently and to think uh, really from like what the, what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs from a perspective of wisdom, think about the long-term consequences of your choices in your relationship and your sexual behavior and, and to have these students reconsider that. In some ways, it's really like what Dr. Albert Moeller talks about. It's awakening the, the moral intuition that 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 Mm -hmm. all planted in us by the image of God. And so we're seeing that awakened. We're we're thankful for planting that seed in these uh, these students' minds and hearts. And it's really an excellent presentation. I wish uh, adults could see um, the Reality Project in in motion because it really does an excellent job of raising in a way that communicates with young people the, the issues and questions that they face on a regular basis because they are, as you pointed out, bombarded with all kinds of sexual messages that can conflict with their own conscience, but give them absolutely no reason to make good decisions. So the Reality Project steps in and provides an alternative. What a, a great program. How long has that been going on? You know, it's been going on for at least a couple decades. And uh, and so we're very thankful to be able to continue to do that. And, and Christians can uh, 
see or, or receive the insight of that because we also provide a thing we call the parent forum, usually in church settings that meets with the parents and uh, provides them with insights in, into what uh, students today are being exposed to, what they're thinking, what they're doing, and, and uh, how to think about that from God's perspective. Now, the Pregnancy Resource Center's HEART, the Reality Project, First Image, there are no public funds available to support, to underwrite uh, the work that you're doing. How are you able to, to function in the 21st century with the cost of, of uh, doing business as high as it is? Well, we do it because of God's caring, compassionate people. You know, we're thankful for the individuals, mostly individuals, but also the churches and uh, and a few foundations and uh, who give voluntarily. So you're right, Georgine, we receive no, uh, no government funding. Uh, I wouldn't take it even if they offered it because uh, we do not want to be hindered in any way with the freedom to share the gospel uh, to those who are open to that. And so uh, people give to us. Uh, they can go to our website, find out more about that. It's uh, first, spelled out, first-image.org, and uh, tells about our programs and, and talks about opportunities to be involved. Well, that's really my, my next question. I'm encouraging people on uh, during this week and as we're reflecting on the infamous decisions that made abortion as we know it possible, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, as pro-life people, how can we um, be constructive in our convictions and have an impact here in our community? And certainly one ministry I would highly recommend is the Ministry of the Pregnancy Resource Centers in the Portland metro area that's under the umbrella of First Image. What kind of help can we provide uh, in addition to financial support? Well, first of all, we are always looking for more people to pray. We are involved in an impossible ministry. I mean, Jesus said that people mm. even entering the kingdom is humanly impossible. Well, people having their eyes open to the life inside of them is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So that comes exercise through prayer. And so you can go on to our uh, our website and sign up for our, for our prayer team, and we send out prayer requests to pray for those that uh, we're serving, and, and that is very powerful. Another way is uh, if you're interested in exploring volunteering in one of our centers, we provide excellent and extensive uh, training for that. In fact, the next uh, volunteer training is going to be on uh, February 10th, and we, we hold that about three times a year, and uh, so contact us if you're interested in volunteering in one of our centers as a receptionist or a peer counselor or someone is, is an auxiliary volunteer to help with the baby clothes and the donations and so forth. And you can donate uh, good baby clothes, maternity clothes, uh, baby items and so forth to any of our centers, which you can find again on our website. And that's a wonderful way to, to get involved as well. Yesterday marked the 45th anniversary of the infamous uh, Road versus Wade Supreme Court decision. What keeps you going after so many years of seeing abortion on demand with uh, few allowances for restrictions in places around the country? What keeps you going? Well, abiding in Christ. Uh, you know, the scripture, Jesus says that, uh, you know, if we abide in him and he in us, uh, you know, we will bear fruit that lasts. Our joy will be full. And so even though we get stretched, all of us get stretched, as any of us do in faithfully following the Lord in this culture, uh, Jesus fills us back up with love. We're compelled by the love of Christ. And I find that to be the experience. Uh, it's, it's those that I serve with. It's the privilege of serving with dedicated volunteers and staff and a board. They're just exceptional people. It's also the partnership with churches. I just love to see God mobilize his people in getting out of our comfort zones and stepping into the messy arena that is confused by, you know, political power and all that other stuff and bring the compassion and the gospel of Jesus, the hope. I mean, to hopeless people, our neighbors are just hopeless. And uh, I mean, it's such a privilege that, that we've been given life and we have life to give away, that we've been given truth, we've been given love and that it overflows. I mean, not that I feel that way every day, but uh, then go back to the well and drink from the living water and the Lord gives 
is what we need. Well, I want to thank you and uh, those who you serve with, uh, the staff and the volunteers of First Image, the Pregnancy Resource Centers, uh, the women who are peer counselors with Heart, the Reality Project. Uh, You're making a significant impact in our community. And for those of us who would like to do likewise, I would encourage you to be in touch with First Image and find out more how you can come alongside this ministry uh, and help. We're making a difference here in the state of Oregon. And it's always fascinating to me in a place where it seems, as you mentioned earlier, impossible. Good things are happening. And one example of that certainly is First Image uh, and the various ministries under that heading. Larry Gadbaugh, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much, Georgine. Appreciate it. Again, Larry is the CEO of First Image um, and the Pregnancy Resource Centers, the Heart Program, and the Reality Project are all under that uh, that general heading, a, a great and effective ministry in our community. Now, later in the program, we're going to talk with uh, Tori Whiting. She's a research associate at the Center for International Trade and Economics. We're going to talk about trade tariffs that the president earlier today signed off on under um, with the advice of many suggesting this is not in the best interests of, uh, of trade, generally speaking. It certainly will benefit a couple of, of uh, com- com- companies. That's the word I'm looking for. We're going to look at what the president has signed off on and why there are those who say this is not a good idea overall. So we'll talk with Tori Whiting about that. And then uh, later we're going to talk with Jonathan Butcher, a senior uh, policy analyst in Heritage, uh, the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy, on the seventh annual National School Choice Week. We're right in the midst of it, and we'll talk about what that is and who benefits. Uh, we'll talk with Jeff Jimerson. He's the director of Oregon Life United. We actually spoke with him briefly last week. But today we're going to talk about petition number one. Now, many of you know that there have been efforts recently to place uh, the state funding of abortion on Oregon's ballot. And for various reasons, that has not succeeded up to this point. And some of those reasons are, quite frankly, rather maddening and orchestrated by opponents. But that aside, uh, Oregon Life United is very close to placing that question on Oregon's ballot in 2018. Now, this will be the first time since, I believe, 1984. So this is significant. I've mentioned that in 84, I was part of the effort to stop state funding of abortion in the state of Oregon. Well, that opportunity is uh, about to present itself again in 2018, but that's not going to be possible unless uh, you and I help. And so we're going to talk with Jeff Jimerson about that effort. Oregon Life United sponsored um, Speak Life uh, on Sunday, and the focus of those three events, one in Portland, one in Salem, and a third in Medford, was to draw people's attention to this effort and to inspire us to consider what's at stake. It really isn't about politics. It's not so much about petitions and signatures, although all of those things are required. What it's about are the lives of children in the state of Oregon and the fact that taxpayers uh, underwrite the cost of about 10 abortions a day in the state of Oregon. Those are state-funded abortions. And while there's been some dispute over whether or not that's uh, actually the case, that is factually correct, uh, that through the Oregon Health Plan, we are paying for abortions in the state of Oregon. And then we won't even get into uh, the law that was signed uh, by the governor in the state of Oregon in this last legislature that goes well beyond what we've seen here and any other state has seen across the country. So we're going to talk with Jeff about that. And again, my, my hope is that we will consider, maybe I need to do something. Maybe I can make a difference. I can collect a couple of signatures. I can sign the petition. And we'll let you, uh, we'll let you know about a, a mechanism to find out if you've already signed it and you're not sure, or if you're circulating a petition and folks you're approaching aren't sure, did I already sign it or not? I did some time ago, but was it this one? So anyway, we'll get into all of that with him later in the 5 o'clock hour. Now, news and traffic at the top of the hour. Tori Whiting, when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9. 
93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. We're glad to have you with us this afternoon. Well, um, in January, which we're currently in, there are four major trade cases that uh, crossed the president's uh, desk. In fact, I believe he signed at least two of them earlier today. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But these cases involve different products and sectors of the economy. They have a few simple things in common. To talk with us about that is Tori Whiting. She's a research associate at the Center for International Trade and Economics. Uh, she wrote a piece on the very subject for guidelines for pre- the uh, president when considering tariffs. And she joins us now to talk about uh, what the president has considered and may, if I understood while the program was going on with one eye poised on television, may have already uh, signed off on. Tori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, let's talk about these uh, four cases that the president uh, was has been considering. Are you with us? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. I cut out there for me. So uh, right now, well, yesterday, actually, the president decided that he was going to implement tariff under two of the four cases that we currently have before us. Um, what those do is they are implementing tariffs on the basis of safeguarding a domestic industry. So what this means for Americans is higher prices for solar panels and modules, which is the first case, and higher prices for washing machines, which is the second case. So what would be the upside from the president's perspective? Well, the argument is that import of the products that I just mentioned are injuring the domestic economy, particularly the petitioners who are Solar World and Zeneva. Solar World being a company that is out of Oregon. And then the, the other petitioner in the in the washer case is Whirlpool. So the argument is that, you know, restricting these imports uh, will help those companies create more jobs and, uh, and greater wealth in the United States. But that's simply not the case. What we know from the past with these types of trade cases is that they result in um, serious damage to other aspects of the U.S. economy. You know, you're looking at downstream solar industries like in dollars and the folks who, you know, make different equipment that the panels and models go into. You're also looking at companies like Sears that sell washing machines that um, are not going to be able to get some of their washing machines as a result of these tariffs. And one of the things that you um, write in your report on this is that trade policy shouldn't be about tipping the scale toward one U.S. industry or interest group over another. It should focus on lowering trade barriers. Um, how close did the president come to, to that standard in uh, at least in two of these cases signing off on uh, on tariffs? Well, these these two cases and the and the tariffs that were imposed, they do to scale. Um, the petitioners in these cases represent domestic industries that have put thousands of dollars behind lobbying and lawyers to use our trade laws and to get the get the scale tipped in their favor. And they were successful in doing that. And there are going to be negative consequences for the economy. I mean, we've seen in the past when these types of tariffs were implemented. Most recent were in 2002 under President Bush. Um, there were two. 200,000 job loss as a result of the tariffs in just 18 months. Um, now, these are covering different products, but that just shows you kind of an extreme example of the impact of tariffs overall. Now, when signing off on these two um, considerations, does the president explain what how he thinks this is ultimately going to benefit? You suggest in your report that um, the president needed to consider all potential negative repercussions to the U.S. economy as a result of tariffs. Did he address that at all? And did he attempt to make the case in favor 
favor of signing off at least on two and the other two, I don't know if he's still considering or if he's rejected those two requests. So the president is really focusing on what he believes is going to help create job America. Unfortunately, that is kind of uh, an ill-conceived notion because when you are putting your hand on the scale to benefit, you know, jobs in one sector over jobs in another sector, it's not really letting the economy work to create the best jobs that are going to be in the economy for the long haul. Now, the two other cases that you mentioned are uh, being considered under a separate trade law, but they still have to be decided by the administration. Um, The Office of the United States Trade Representative and the International Trade Commission have sent reports to um, to the White House for these two cases. They're on steel imports and aluminum imports. And these cases would uh, would result in tariffs on the basis of national security. So saying that these two types of products are a matter of national security for the United States, and that's why they should be restricted. They're currently still being uh, determined by the administration. I believe that the president has 90 days from the time when the um, when the report were submitted to make a determination. So we should probably see a decision on that in the coming months. So what should we expect as a consequence of the president's actions earlier this week? Well, I think that the first thing that we will see will be price increases. Tariffs in their essence increase prices. Um, and those are not increased prices for, you know, whatever foreign company or foreign entity it, it seems like maybe we're implementing tariffs on. Those are tariff increases and in, in essentially tax increases on Americans who want to buy the product that are being restricted. So when you go to the store and you want to and you want to buy a washing machine, you're going to see higher prices as a result of the tariffs. And you're also going to see less choices because along with tariffs, there's also a quota. And by a quota, that means that um, after a certain certain number of washers are imported, they are tariffed at a higher rate. So you're going to see um, less of the options available for washers, and that just impacts the freedom of Americans to choose what they want to buy and how much they want to spend. Now, for those who requested these tariffs, um, what benefit would they derive if they're going to sell fewer products, if it's going to increase the cost of what they produce? From their vantage point, what did they argue would be in their favor? Well, the petitioners in these cases think that uh, rest- Restricting competition and restricting import will make them, at least in the washer case, one of the sole providers of, of the product in question. So it's essentially going to to drive out the competition and to make these petitioning country these petitioning companies um, getting in the windfall because people have to buy washers, um, clothes have to be washed. I don't think anybody wants to go back to you know washing them with a bucket of water. So I believe that what they really are the essence of what these petitioners are trying to do is instead of ending their money on improving their business practices and making more competitive products. They're lobbying the government and trying to get out of just being more innovative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we'll certainly uh, watch what the president does with the two remaining um, cases that you mentioned. But uh, again, the president has apparently signed off on uh, the other two uh, and imposing tariffs on products that uh, many of us uh, use and purchase, big ticket items. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it, Tori. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Again, Tori Whiting is a research associate at the Center for International Trade and Economics on the president's uh, trade tariff decisions made uh, earlier this week and uh, the two that are remaining. Up next, we're going to talk with Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy.
policy. This week marks the seventh annual National School Choice Week. We'll find out what school choice means and what difference it's making when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, this week marks the seventh annual National School Choice Week, highlighting the importance of giving students options for their educational needs. With over 400,000 of them using some means of financial assistance through tax credits, vouchers, scholarships, to attend schools um, of their choice, this week marks an important opportunity to encourage the same. Uh, Joining us to talk about that is Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior policy analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Now, National School Choice Week, it certainly draws our attention towards school choice, but what is this uh, occasion designed to help us appreciate and perhaps consider moving forward? Well, I think the most telling are the stories of the families whose lives have been changed by being able to choose how and where their children learn. Um, a school choice week is exciting because we can talk about families that choose a new public school for their child, who choose a public charter school, or choose one of the private options that you mentioned before. But it's these stories of lives that have been changed that uh, I think are what are so valuable about being able to uh, to find a quality education for your child. One of the things that I especially appreciate about the notion of school choice, if your child is stuck in a low-performing school uh, and there's no other option available, it seems that school choice ought to be an option for parents who don't want to wait, you know, another generation for them to sort of sort out what the problems are. And a lot of these low-performance, low-income schools trap these kids in situations where there's very little opportunity for uh, for growth and improvement. Well, and look, these children's, uh, every child's life is precious and valuable. And you're exactly right. We can't wait for a school turnaround effort or more funding or, you know, a new principal or, or you know, whatever a, a district may try to do that may take several months or even years to show some sort of effect. We want, uh, and parents should want, the ability to make choices in the best interest of their children today and not have to wait. Well, let's talk about some of the school choices that are currently available and how many children have availed themselves of these options. Sure. So as you mentioned, there's uh, just a little under about half a million children around the country using some form of private school choice, like an education savings account, which are available in Arizona, um, Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, soon uh, North Carolina as well. Uh, That'll begin this year. Um, And we have, you know, three million children using public charter schools around the country. Um, Arizona, California, Florida in particular have very strong charter school laws and and, uh, large populations of those students. Uh, What's exciting, I think, uh, about these programs are uh, not just, uh, you know, the fact that they get to choose, which is a really important, important thing, but also that we see research demonstrating very high levels of parent satisfaction. And we are starting to see results from research showing long-term positive outcomes, like more likely to get into college and stay in college and perhaps even better outcomes after that. Uh, Although the, you know, the research is still coming on those things, but that's a, those are good signs. Now, one of the things that we often hear is that if If you allow uh, school choice, you are robbing public schools of the much needed funds they need to function uh, well, that uh, in school choice situations, that those options don't have the same obligations that public schools do in educating uh, students who require more resource to provide uh, for their uh, education experience. How do you respond to the the suggestion that allowing the choice uh, that we're we're lauding today uh, robs public institutions of um, the mandate that they're required to provide? 
reform uh, in uh, in public education? Well, remember, when a student leaves to make a choice to learn somewhere else, they're no longer at that public school. So uh, the money that was providing for that education shouldn't doesn't need to be there anymore because the student's not there. The student's gone somewhere else. And true, there are short-term costs, there are variable costs, uh, and even, you know, short-term fixed costs. Uh, but in the long run, right, all of these costs are variable. They do change over time in terms of uh, how many students are in a classroom and, and the variety of things that a public schools or any institution would need to provide. Uh, more importantly, when it comes to uh, that buzzword, I think that thrown around a lot, accountability or transparency, uh, private schools in particular, or any schools of choice, public charter schools could be included in that. Um, they have to make sure that they're providing a quality experience for a child. Otherwise, a parent has no reason to keep them there, right? That's why a parent chose a new school in the first place, because they were looking for something of higher quality than what was uh, what they were finding before. Uh, so it's key for those schools, right, to make sure that they're providing something authentic, something high quality, uh, so that the student can succeed. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there are more than 60 school choice options that now operate in some 30 states in the District of Columbia. What do you see moving forward in terms of school choice options being made available elsewhere in the country with the other um, 20 states that don't currently have uh, the uh, school choice options that are operating? Well, I think two very exciting things on the horizon. I think one is that when we are talking about school choice today, what it's coming to mean is um, more learning options. And it's not just about the four walls of a classroom. Today, students can learn online at home. They can have a tutor somewhere else in the country or even in another country. Uh, there are all sorts of options available to students today through the internet and, uh, and other means of, of accessing quality information. So we're talking today about creating things like education savings accounts, as I mentioned before which allows students to make multiple choices in a day or in a week about where and how they learn. Very exciting. Private school options are just one of them. Personal tutors, educational therapies are some of the others. So that's one. And then I think the other is that as we talk about uh, the way that education is going to be financed, these education savings accounts are brushing up against some of the cutting-edge technologies using uh, financial technology to access things through your cell phone, to pay for things, just like we pay today for uh, you know a service like Uber or Lyft or ordering food or, or whatever. Uh, today, we are going to, we're moving closer to the day when families and students can access their educational options the same way. So very exciting to uh, see learning enter the 21st century. Do you think that would render public education as we know it obsolete? Or are you seeing um, that this is going to be uh, one of the options among many others? No, I think it should be one of the options among many others. You know, There are great public schools out there that serve students well in places all mm-hmm. over the country. Yes. Um, and so students and parents should be allowed to choose uh, those schools. But for those that it isn't a good, for those where there's a bully or uh, the student's just not gelling with the teacher or there's something going on in a, in a classroom where a student is struggling, we have got to provide something right now for that student to be able to succeed and we can't wait. For those who are succeeding in a traditional public school, carry on, right? We hope it continues. But for those that aren't, we need to provide something quality for them as well. Now, for listeners who are interested in uh, marking the seventh year of the National School Choice Week and would like more information, what would you suggest they do to learn more about options that are available, what's working, and what the future may look like? There's great research and 
stories from parents available at www.heritage.org. We have a whole bunch of reports explaining what is available and what is out there state by state and uh, and stories from families that are using these options and uh, what it means to them. Well, I thank you so much for talking with us about uh, this seventh annual National School Choice Week and uh, hope you have a great evening. Thank you. You too. Again, uh, Jonathan Butcher is a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy on the seventh annual National School Choice Week. Up next, we're going to talk with Jeff Jemerson. He's the director of Oregon Life United. Petition number one to stop state funding of abortion in Oregon. And yes, your tax dollars do go to that purpose. Uh, That uh, petition is currently being circulated, and uh, we are very close to getting that issue on the ballot in November of 2018. So Jeff is going to talk with us specifically about petition number one, um, what has happened in the past uh, that prevented that opportunity and uh, what we need to do now to uh, to get this uh, stop taxpayer funding of abortion on the ballot. I have in front of me a packet um, that simply has that title, Stop Taxpayer Funding of Abortion, 30 Signatures, 30 Days, Please Return by February 20th. And we want to get as many of you as possible uh, to request this same packet of information, as well as a resource that will help you find out if you have already signed on to the current petition that's being circulated. Uh, there's a website, and we'll tell you more about that uh, so that you can determine whether or not you've signed. One of the things that you want to uh, avoid, if possible, are people signing uh, the petition multiple times. Uh, They are submitted, I believe, in March is the early day uh, that they're submitted for kind of an early review. And if there are duplicates and they they don't check all of them, they take samples. And if they find in the samples that there are too many duplicates and so on, they sort of estimate how many valid signatures there are and how many need to be collected moving forward. And if uh, we can be efficient in having uh, people sign only once, uh, that will reduce the likelihood that um, there'll be a significant deficit when that time comes. So anyway, we're going to talk with Jeff Jimerson about all of that and hopefully inspire many of you to uh, take the step toward doing something constructive, circulating a petition, family members, uh, your Bible study, uh, people that you know are like-minded or those that you're not sure about, giving them the opportunity because you'd be surprised to learn that uh, there are those who aren't necessarily self-identified as pro-life but do not support the notion of uh, taxpayer dollars in the state of Oregon supporting abortion, abortion rather. So we'll talk more about that with Jeff Jimerson. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as many of you know, this weekend there were three events, outstanding events, at least I know the one in Portland was, and I assume Salem and Medford were the same. They were Speak Life 18, sponsored by Oregon Life United, drawing attention to petition number one to stop state funding of abortion here in the state of Oregon. Jeff Jimerson uh, joined me last week to talk about that. I invited him to join us today to talk about that petition, where it stands, where it needs to go in order for this uh, question to appear on the November 2018 ballot. So Jeff Jemerson is the uh, uh, director of Oregon Life United, and I appreciate your joining us once again to talk about petition number one. Welcome. Hey, Georgine. Thank you so much. Well, let's talk about um, the effort to stop taxpayer funding for abortion. Now, some of our listeners might have assumed there was an effort already underway that failed, and this uh, this was essentially a, a dead deal. Bring us up to date. No, it's not a dead deal at all. You know, this is a, a all-volunteer citizen initiative, and every couple of years, we have an opportunity to put something on the ballot. And so we have started a new petition for 2018, and we're out getting signatures. We've been uh, gathering signatures for petition number one for several 
lymphoma now, and we are getting getting up to the deadline. We've got a few months to go, but so far we've been able to gather 92,000 signatures, and our, our goal is 150,000, so we're, we're getting close. Yeah, very close. Um, as I mentioned at the uh, Speak Life event, you incur- in fact, you made uh, petitions available, and you encourage people to circulate them over the next 30 days in particular. Um, talk a little bit about that effort and how we can help move this forward so that ultimately this is a question that will appear on the uh, ballot in November uh, in 2018. Yeah, we are really dependent upon local Christians, church groups, uh, really anyone who recognizes that it is a sin for us to be not only uh, condoning abortion, but requiring citizens in the state of Oregon to be participating in that. So, you know, what we're asking folks to do is just help us get signatures. Uh, we have a website that makes it really easy for anyone who wants to help. And all you need to do is go to our website and request petitions. We're challenging people to get 30 signatures in the next 30 days. So um, if you don't mind, I'll mention that website. Please do. Is, yeah. Yeah, it's www.stopthefunding.org, so stopthefunding.org. And just click on the the button that says Request Petition Sheets, and we'll get those in the mail to you tomorrow and uh, get you started. It's a little bit of, um, you know, if you've never done that before, it can maybe be a little bit intimidating. You know, how do you go about getting signatures on a petition? We'll include all the instructions. We have uh, a nice little training video on the website, so we're really trying to support, you know, as many Oregonians as possible who want to help us get this on the ballot. Yeah, in fact, people may think it's harder than it has to be. I mean, we, we know people that uh, would happily sign a petition. You just have to make it available to them. And I appreciate that you provide some help and training and understanding about how to go about that. And I'm encouraging people to maybe step out and do something a, a little bit courageous that they've never done before. Others uh, who are listening have, have done this before and um, maybe just need to, uh, to be encouraged to engage in this particular petition. You also have a resource available for those who think, well, did I sign this already or didn't I sign? It. That's a question that they uh, they may have because petitions uh, come and go of various kinds. Uh, but there's a resource to help f- uh, folks find out if they've actually signed already. Yeah, and I think it's something that I've never seen before for any ballot petition in Oregon. So if you go to stopthefunding.org, you can type in your first and last name, and we'll tell you instantly whether you've signed this petition. We've uh, processed all the signatures that we've received so far, and we just continue to do that on a weekly basis. So um, type in your name. Maybe type in your spouse's name, find out um, if you have signed it. If you have already, great, thank you. If you haven't, you could actually print a single signature petition sheet from our website, get that signed and mailed into us. Now, um, how many signatures do you need before the, the deadline requires you to turn in what you have? So the, the early submittal deadline that the election office um, places on, on this drive is May 25th. And we need to have, we need to turn in at least 117,600 roughly signatures. So 117 and some change by May 25th. Uh, as you mentioned and, and we talked about earlier, we've got 92,000 signatures so far. So we need another 25,000 signatures or so in the next couple months. Uh, we'll turn those in. The elections office will count them, tell us if we need any additional because, you know, there'll be people who are unregistered to vote and other reasons that signatures get disqualified. So they'll tell us how much more we need and we'll have a short window of time after that to get it done. Now, this, of course, is for the state of Oregon. So you have to be an Oregon resident to, to sign on to this effort. What is the ballot title that people are being asked to sign on to? Well, it's pretty simple. You know, we're, as a, as a constitutional amendment, we are required by the state to have a single subject. It needs to be uh, very concise and focused. And our our measure is to prohibit public funding of abortion. So, you know, the ballot title itself, that folks will be on the ballot if, if this does. 
does indeed qualify, uh, reads like this. Uh, prohibits spending public funds directly and indirectly for abortion with exceptions and then reduces abortion access. So, you know, this, this statement, while it's not perfect, uh, it's written by the Oregon Attorney General. And, you know, we uh, we don't have a whole lot of uh, influence over what that ballot title says, but it is uh, something that we've been given and we're going for it. Uh, the ultimate um, information that you want to read and know about is the law itself. So the ballot title isn't the law. The ballot title is meant to explain what the law does. Mm-hmm. And what we recommend folks doing is going to our website, stopthefunding.org, clicking on about the petition, and then you can read the full text of the law. And again, it's, it's very simple. It's very clear. It prohibits public funding of abortion, um, except with a very limited um, um, circumstances. Uh, so right now in Oregon, you and I as taxpayers are paying for 10 abortions every single day. And most of those, virtually all of those are healthy babies and healthy moms. And we just don't, we don't think we should be forced to participate in that. And we have an opportunity to say yay or nay moving forward uh, once this uh, this issue is on uh, on the ballot. So I'm grateful for that opportunity. And I think for those of us who self-identify as pro-life, um, uh, most of us, I would say, uh, confidently would, uh, would want to end state funding of abortion. But I think there are also those who would identify uh, in other ways that may also, whether or not they support abortion, may also oppose the idea that state funding would go to underwrite the cost of abortion. So we may find that there are allies on this issue that we may disagree on other elements as well. So there's a, a tremendous opportunity here to amend Oregon's constitution with regard to the funding, uh, state funding of abortion. Yeah, we, we, we talked to so many people who, you know, they may not be as pro-life as I am, but mm-hmm. uh, they that doesn't mean they want to pay for abortion. So that, that does give us um, optimism or, you know, putting this on the ballot and getting a, a really broad spectrum of support uh, come November. I so appreciated hearing Governor Huckabee speak on uh, on Sunday. Um, he talked about the fact that it, it, this it really isn't about uh, state petition and initiative. It's not about politics, although those things are necessary to uh, to get to uh, the goal that we've established here. What it's really about is saving lives of individuals. And if we had the opportunity face to face to save one whose life is in peril, there's no question that we wouldn't rush forward and do all that we could to preserve the life of someone that uh, that is struggling. And that's really what this petition is all about, is for those who have no voice, have no uh, capacity to uh, to cry out for their own um, life and interest. Uh, we're asking that Oregonians would consider that we not continue to, to pay for the abortions that individuals choose to have in the state of Oregon. And uh, it seems like a reasonable question and a great opportunity that I don't want to miss in 2018. Yeah. And wasn't that encouraging to hear from Governor Huckabee? Oh, absolutely. You know, I have heard nothing but positive response. You know, after we left that Portland uh, event, we headed down to Salem and did it all over again. And, and it was just, just a blessing. That was a little different because we did it at a church. Mm-hmm. And then and then to, uh, yesterday, we did it all over again in Medford. And man, Medford, <laughs> those, guys, <laughs> those guys are great. Uh, we had three TV stations out uh, to cover that. And this morning's newspaper, uh, front page coverage of Governor Huckabee coming to town. So it was really pretty cool. Yeah, Medford definitely is not Portland, is it? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different place. Yeah. Well, again, I, I so appreciate your perseverance in this area and giving us the opportunity to do something constructive and meaningful to stop state funding of abortion in uh, in Oregon. And I, I really want to challenge and encourage our listeners to take advantage of the opportunity to get a petition, whether that's to sign your signature and, and send it back, but to try to collect some uh, some signatures of like-minded people that, um, that you work with, that are in your neighborhood, in your family, in your Bible study, uh, in your church, and let's get this thing on the ballot. And then Oregonians can decide whether or not they want to continue to underwrite 10 abortions a day uh, in this state through uh, our tax dollars. But let's get that question on the ballot and then uh, give people an opportunity to 
vote. Jeff Jimerson, I commend you for your perseverance. I thank you for uh, once again joining us, and I'd appreciate if we can talk from time to time to kind of stay updated on how this effort is going. I would love that opportunity, yeah, and thank you so much, Georgine, for your teamwork. Jeff Jimerson, thanks so much. Uh, Jeff is the director of Oregon Life United, petition number one, by the way, that stopthefunding.org is the website for more information. I'm just going to encourage you to have a little courage, a little resolve um, to move this thing forward because we need you to do it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, of course, is the deadline to vote in Oregon's special election on health care taxes. Today is that last day. You don't have time to put it in the mail, even though it's a mail uh, mail in ballot. You have to drop that off. You have to deliver your ballot in person by 8 p.m. in order for your vote to count. The only issue on the ballot, of course, is Measure 101, which would raise $210 million to, two, to $320 million in taxes on Oregon's largest hospitals and most health insurance policies in 2019. The taxes are one part of a plan that state lawmakers passed last year to pay for some patients and services under Oregon's medical Medicaid program. Roughly a million low-income adults and children in Oregon rely on Medicaid for free health care. The state faces a dilemma on how to pay for approximately 375,000 adults added to Medicare after eligibility criteria were broadened under the Affordable Care Act. Now, under that act, the federal government initially covered 100 percent of the costs for newly eligible patients, but states were required to gradually pick up more and more of the cost, and Oregon hasn't identified a long-term way to pay for it. These taxes are part of the state's short-term fix. Opponents are concerned that this tax on hospitals and other medical providers and insurance companies will simply be passed on to um, insurers and patients, and therefore it is essentially a tax on Oregonians. Uh, But you have the opportunity to decide. Hospitals have asked to be taxed in order to keep hundreds of thousands of patients insured. Of course, those uh, that tax increase on hospitals would be passed on to paying patients. Insurance policies would be taxed at 1.5%. Again, every Oregonian with insurance would pay that. And some of those proceeds are to be used to lower the cost of premiums purchased in the individual insurance market. Well, again, you have the opportunity to decide the future of Oregon with regard to this area in uh, Ballot Measure 101. Uh, Ballot drop boxes are often located at local government buildings like elections headquarters, libraries, city halls. You can also go to the Secretary of State's website for the drop-off location nearest you. Bottom line is today is the day for that to, uh, to be done. Taking a look at tomorrow's program, we're going to talk with Nancy Piercy. She's the author most recently of Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. The book is published by Baker Books. We'll have that conversation on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, our annual cross-international radiothon. Our attention is going to be focused on two African tribes that have been impacted uh, by a severe uh, uh, drought in Africa. They are the Maasai and the Turkana tribes. They're losing animals, and once animals are gone in that culture, they have nothing, no income, no resources to buy food or to survive. Their animals are not only their source of income, but it's also their means of survival. Now, drought has been ongoing for about 18 months, and that's affected areas in Kenya and South Sudan. No rain is expected until at the earliest March and possibly April of this year. The United Nations is calling this the worst humanitarian crisis in these African nations since 1945. And make note, the United Nations was formed in 1945, so the worst in its existence and is projected to impact as many as 20 million people. Well, Cross International is partnering, uh, has partners rather, in this area, and they are begging Cross International for help. And of course, Cross 
relies on folks like us to uh, to support the work that they are doing. And death for many of these people is looming. Now, people are turning to the church because they know that's the only hope that they have to receive help of any kind, whether that's physical or spiritual. And churches are surveying the areas within a 30 to 40 mile radius of their church location to rescue the families who are in the greatest need. And those are not just families who are part of the church, but uh, those families that are not connected in any way to the church. And Cross International is providing or at least trying to provide resources so that the church can minister to those uh, in their community in a very wide 30 to 40 mile radius. Now, food is purchased in country. It's trucked into those regions that are hardest hit due to restrictions on imported food and the waiting period of some six to eight weeks that they don't have six to eight weeks to uh, to wait. So Cross has a, a means within the countries to provide the resources that these individuals and families and churches need to distribute to those families and individuals so that they can um, survive. Now, you may have noted that uh, while there are some limited stories being reported on the nightly news, they don't really capture the true gravity of the drought and the famine that are now impacting these two tribes in Africa, in South Sudan and Kenya, the Maasai and the Turkana. So we're going to be asked to come alongside and help them uh, to meet this very desperate need that uh, that definitely has a a clock ticking um, associated with it. It is uh, becoming a catastrophic uh, problem. Now, United Nations officials believe this may soon become the largest humanitarian crisis since the creation of the United Nations again in 1945, and people will simply starve to death. According to UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Stephen O'Brien. Now, the drought triggers uh, severe famine, the threat of starvation looms, and while we uh, in the 21st century see images of those who suffer as a consequence of starvation, and we may become somewhat calloused or used to seeing these kinds of images, we're talking about what's happening right now uh, in these areas in Kenya and South Sudan to actual people with names and histories and stories, each one, uh, families who are coming in large droves uh, to churches in their area, believing that is their only hope. And so Cross International will join me in studio on Thursday, and we're going to bring in greater detail the plight of these areas to your attention. And I would ask you to begin even now to pray for these uh, two tribes, the Maasai and the Turkana. Um, They are desperate, uh, but they're also searching for hope, and the churches are helping to provide uh, that to some degree. And I'd also ask that you would consider how you might financially help with this effort. My understanding is we're asking that uh, gifts of $60 be given. And and again, my understanding is, and we'll go into greater detail uh, about that on Thursday, that that would provide enough uh, resource, enough food, nutrition for a child, for example, for five months. So a gift of $60 can go a very, very long way. And of course, KPDQ listeners and our sister station, The Fish, their listeners um, are partnering with uh, radio, Christian radio listeners from all across the country. And while we may see the problem as so massive, we can't even imagine that we could make much of a difference to the individual who's uh, starving, to the mother and father who are looking into the faces of their hungry children. They know that whatever gift you give, it's going to make a difference to them. And together, we can make a significant impact on what is uh, a a catastrophe that is growing and uh, currently in the making. So that's going to be the focus of our time and attention on Thursday. And then on Friday, all things uh, uh, being considered will lighten things up just a bit. Uh, Sometimes after a very heavy day, like we're anticipating on Thursday, it's uh, it's good to have the luxury of uh, focusing on the lighter side of the news, and we will attempt to do that. I hope you will join us uh, for both days. But again, I would ask that you would pray for the Maasai and the Turkana tribes in Kenya and South Sudan. 
land and that you would consider uh, making a generous gift to help uh, relieve them of their current suffering. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and encourage you, if you'd like to find out more about the guests that we spoke with today, you can always go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You'll find the names of the guests and the organizations they're associated with. Sometimes there are links specifically to them as well. And there's also the podcast where you can hear an interview that you may have missed. So check that out at kpdq.com. Thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.